0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to to find Philippians chapter two, verse five. As we think about, <clears throat> excuse me, the mystery of Christmas. Not that it, we didn't dive into an enough mystery last week in Romans chapter nine. Um, I've received a variety of emails this week. Uh, many of them really encouraging. Many wondering about this or that. So I thought it might be helpful, even before we dive into Philippians 2, you've got at the top of your notes that you received when you came in just some truths to remember, especially when we encounter tough texts like we did this last week. I just want to put three truths before you just just to remember. One, we need to remember that God's nature can be mysterious. You Think about it. He's one God in three persons. You stop there and we are already baffled. Right? You stop there and we have already begun, gone way beyond the bounds of our, it, our finite minds and our reason. It's not, there's no contradiction there, but there is mystery here. He's holy above us, yet near to us. How can he be both powerful and patient? He's sovereign and free, wrathful and merciful, just and forgiving, altogether great and good. If if last week you found it difficult to keep God in the small box you had created for him, then part of my purpose was accomplished. If if last week you walked away thinking, "Wow, God's character is far more mysterious in in these ways than I had imagined." Then then don't don't run from that. I want to be careful here. Whenever we resort to calling something mystery, it's not because we're intellectually lazy. Whenever we can't figure something out, we don't just say, okay, mystery and move on. We're not throwing our brains out the door, but at the same time, the biblical testimony leaves us with mystery at different points, leaves us with truths that we put next to each other, and our finite minds have a hard time figuring out how they go together. Tozer said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him. We want a God that we can in some measure control. And then he commented, Love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel in reverence at outside. And we're going to see that today in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is both God and man. That's mystery. Now, it's a little different than Romans 9. It's not going to be as much of an affront to human autonomy as Romans chapter 9 but it's mystery nonetheless. Now second truth we need to remember especially in light of God's sovereign mercy man's responsibility can't be ignored this is obviously a huge danger that comes with a high view of the sovereignty of God. That we will minimize or ignore the responsibility of man. But you look all over scripture and you see God's word. You see God's word to unbelievers saying, recognize your sin and receive God's mercy. That, that right there is the message for every person who was here last week. Every person who is here this week. Every person in all creation who has never trusted in Christ for the salvation of your sins. Recognize your sin. See that you have willfully and deliberately chosen to disobey God. You have turned against Him. You have rebelled against a holy God. And in your rebellion, you are deserving of infinite judgment. And He has sent His Son Out of his love for the world. This is, as the angel announced, good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born. And God desires the salvation of every single person on the planet. His mercy is available to you. Receive it. Receive his mercy. Trust what he has done out of love and grace for for the people He has created on the, on the, on, in sending Christ to die on the cross. This is the picture. Recognize your sin and receive His mercy. Call in the name of the Lord, Romans 10 says, and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Like, period. Unbelievers, recognize your sin and receive God's mercy. And believers, worship God humbly. It is not possible to believe Romans chapter 9 and walk away proud. And yet, so often, those who espouse a high view of the sovereignty of God can be so arrogant in their theology. Don't go there. That's not possible. In view of God's sovereign mercy, worship Him humbly and walk with God purely. Oh, do you see how God is eternally, graciously, sovereignly interested in, involved in your salvation? Do not resist Him anymore. Let go of sin and pride and impurity and trust Him. He can be trusted with every detail in your life. Walk with Him in purity and, and yeah, trust God wholeheartedly. This is the beauty of God's sovereignty in all things, to know that He is not powerless when it comes to the circumstances of our lives. He is powerful over the circumstances of our lives so that you can know at this moment that no matter what happens to you today, no matter what happens to you this week, who knows what's going to happen in your life or my life this week? God does, and God is sovereign over it all, and He has promised to use every single detail of it for your good and His glory. Trust him. That's a rock to stand on. Trust him wholeheartedly and pray to him fervently. There are some who, when you think about the sovereignty of God, will say, Well, if, if everything is just destined to happen the way it's going to happen, then it obviously it doesn't matter what I do or anybody else does. What what does prayer matter? I'm gonna pray, but things are just gonna happen the way God has ordained them to happen. No, that is that is never seen. That that kind of approach is never seen in Scripture. We pray to God because God has ordained the prayers of his people to conform his people into his image and to bring about his purposes in the world. I think about I think about my my sons, Caleb and Joshua. Do I know for sure that they will be saved? They're three and four years old. Do I know for sure that they will be saved? No, I, I don't know that. But every single morning I am I am praying and pleading to God on their behalf that He would show love and mercy to them and He would draw them to Himself. And and I'm proclaiming the gospel to them confidently every day to them as I parent them and discipline them and love them and nurture them. I want want them to see the gospel because I know that God has ordained to draw people to Himself through the prayers of His people and the proclamation of the gospel and I want them to be evident and I want that to be true every day in in my life as their, their dad so, so the picture is, when, when we come to texts like these, Romans 9, for example, or Philippians 2, like we're going to talk about today, it's not that we will have all our questions answered. I mentioned last week at the beginning, we'll probably walk away with more questions than we had when we came in, but, but here's the deal. I want, I want to shepherd you well, and I believe that part of shepherding you well is not shying away from hard texts in Scripture. I think one of the things I heard most this last week was people who said, "Well, the, the week before when we were reading through Romans, I was wondering what in the world does Romans nine mean." I don't. I don't want to leave you hanging. I want. I want to, as best as possible, by the grace of God in me, humbly and pastorally, not as one who has it all figured out, but I want to walk us through the text of Scripture and to to see what they are saying, and to believe what they are saying, which leads to the last, last truth I want to remind you of. God's Word can be trusted. God's Word can be trusted to drive our theology. I want to say again now what I said last week. My goal, week by week, is in no way to promote a certain theological agenda or to bring us into a certain theological system. My goal is to preach the text before us Week by week, as the text says it, I want to say it. And if the text doesn't say it, I don't want to say it. My goal is not to, to make us Arminian or Calvinist, cessationist or non-cessationist, this or that, whatever label that people want to put on things. My goal is for us to walk week by week through God's Word. And when we see in Romans chapter 9, verse 11 that God's purpose and election will stand, we're going to believe that. And then, when we see in John 3.16 that he loves the whole world and gave his son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life, we're going to believe that. And when we see in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in him for the creation of the world, we're going we're to believe that. And then, when we see in 2 Peter 3 9 that God desires the salvation of every single person, desires all people to come to repentance, we're going to believe that. And the beauty is, as we do this, the word will lead our faith family. The beauty is, no one text is going to sum it all up. The, one of the dangerous temptations that to take a week in Romans 9 and just start to th- throw in okay well then Everything else in Scripture is out the window. No, like this all goes together. And if we take one text and we disconnect it from other texts, we'll miss part of the point. It's like, it's like Galatians. If all we have is Galatians, we may have a skewed picture of the gospel. Or if all we have is James, we probably walk away with a skewed picture of the gospel. The beauty is, though, we got Galatians and James and Philippians and Romans and everything else together. That it's we as a people. This is why what we do, what we do every week, this is why we do it. We go through a text of Scripture week by week by week by week. And we trust that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, will conform our finite minds and our sinful hearts to His, to His infinite glory and His infinite wisdom and His precious love and mercy. And, and yes, we struggle here, but there is coming a day when sin will be no more and we will see Him truly and see Him wholly as He is. And our questions will be no more. So until that day we want to seek in, press in, and trust his word to lead and guide us for his name's sake. So just a few truths to remember and keep them in mind even as we talk about this this mystery today, the mystery of Christmas. Here's the question we've got to ask at Christmas. We must dare to ask who is Jesus? Who is this baby born in a manger? This is a historic, important, awesome, personal question. It's historic. This was the major question debated by church leaders during the first few centuries of the church. Heresies abounded based on on answers to this question. It's important, it's vital, essential. This question obviously drives the wedge between traditional Judaism and Christianity, right? This question is the stumbling block for, for Muslims, for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Unitarians when they think about Christianity. This is historic, important, and is an awesome question when you think about it. To, to say that the baby in the manger is God in the flesh. That is, that is probably the most staggering claim in all of Christianity. You think about it with me. Once you accept that claim, everything else makes sense. Is it really that astounding to see Jesus walking on the water if we know that He created the water. Is it really that astounding to see Him take five loaves and two fish and feed over 5,000 people when we know that He created the loaves and the fish and the stomachs of every single person that's digesting the food? Is it really that astounding that He is telling people that are dead to come back to life that He Himself comes back to life? When you think about it, once you receive, accept, believe, embrace the Incarnation, It's not really that astounding that Jesus rose from the dead. What's astounding is that he died in the first place, right? This is one awesome thought. And if Jesus is God, if this baby is God, then this is too awesome to drown out with stockings and sleigh bells this time of year. And it's a personal question. The answer to this question has ramifications for every single person in this room and every single person in all history. All 6.8 billion people on the planet. All of them. Their lives are dependent on how they answer this question. Their lives for all of eternity. Your life for all of eternity is dependent on how you answer this question. Who you say Jesus is determines everything about how you live this question determines everything about how how we live and so so I want to focus in on this question I want us to realize even in the church if we're not careful around Christmas we will talk about shepherds and angels and wise men and Joseph and Mary and mangers and oxen and this and that but the mystery of Christmas is not found primarily in the circumstances of the birth of Jesus The mystery of Christmas is found primarily in the identity of the baby in the manger. Not primarily in the circumstances of his birth, but the identity of this baby. And this is where the mystery lies, in the shocking reality that God has revealed his glory in a crying, screaming, bedwetting baby. looking up into the sky, only able to wiggle around in his bed. That is an astounding thought. So, so I want us to look at this text, and we've already read verse 5 and 6, that lead us to this, this first truth about the baby that we, we need to see. And we're going we're gonna to look at it, and we're going to pause and worship. Then we're going to look at another truth and we're going to pause and worship and so on. First truth. The baby in the manger is God. The baby in the manger is God. Now we don't have time to go all over Scripture thinking about how we see this in God's Word. But this is the testimony of all Scripture. It's what Philippians 2, 6 says. He was in the form, the nature of God. We don't have time to go to all these places, so you might write them down. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Now, how do we know this? Well, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Jesus himself testified to his divinity. He said that he is one with the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. All of the I am statements all over the book of John. Especially John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus claiming pre-existence. Existence existence before Abraham as the I am. And the people knew that he was claiming to be God because they tried to stone him as soon as he said that. He claimed that he was one with the Father. That he has authority to forgive sin and judge men. Mark chapter 2 Verse 1 through 11, healing of the paralytic. Before Jesus heals him, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd responds, Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew that he was claiming divinity by claiming the prerogative and the right and the authority to forgive sins. This was what was most amazing for C.S. Lewis. He walked away saying, For, for this man to claim That when someone else sins, he is the one who is offended. And and to judge men, John chapter 5, verse 16 all the way to, I think verse 47, you see a picture of Jesus saying that he is the judge of all men, that all men will stand before him in judgment one day. And he has power over nature, disease, and death. He's calming storms. He's telling the wind and the waves to stop. He's, He's feeding All these people with five loaves and two fish. He's healing people of diseases. Ultimately rising from the dead based on His own power and in His own authority. All of these realities in the words and works of Jesus point to the fact that He is God. So listen to Him and then listen to others. The testimony of others in Scripture. He is the eternal creator of all things. This is the beginning of John's Gospel. Instead of John taking us to a manger, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, through Christ, says John 1, 1-3, through, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. By Him all things were created. All things were created by Him and for Him. Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 He is the eternal creator of all things and He is the sovereign sustainer of all things. This is a great verse. Colossians 1.17 Jesus is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is the sovereign Lord and God. Jesus showing us this, saying this, others saying this, culminates in on one great verse. John chapter 20 verse 28. Thomas, after Jesus has risen from the grave, Thomas comes to Jesus and he, when he sees Him the resurrected Lord, he says my Lord and my God. And This was Jesus' chance if, if he did not believe he was God, if he did not know that he was God, to, to say to Thomas, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You missed it, Thomas. But no, this is Jesus receiving praise as Lord and God and others giving him praise as Lord and God. So, here's the deal. If that is true about what Jesus did and said and about what others said, then we've got a few options. If Jesus said and did these things and if people around him said these things, then there's only a few different options. Number one, we can say Jesus is a legend. Is he a legend? Is all of this just made up? All these gospel accounts, are they just created, manufactured out of nowhere? We don't have time to dive in in depth into this, but the reality is there is more historical reliability and verifiability for the gospel accounts than for any other book in the ancient world. Secular and religious, anthropological scholars, archaeological scholars alike, all testify to the truthfulness of the gospels So some would say, well, no, it's just all made up. Is just a legend? Well, if he's not a legend, then is he a liar? Is he a liar? Almost all people, pagans, secular scholars even, say that Jesus was a humble and meek leader. Now, if Jesus went around saying that he was God and he was not God, Would you call him humble? If I come on the scene claiming to be divine, is your first response, that is one of the most humble guys I've ever seen. No. So if he was claiming to be God, and he knew he wasn't God, then that would make him a liar. You say, well, maybe he was claiming to be God, and he actually thought he was, but he wasn't. That would make him a lunatic. It's the third option. If Jesus said He was God and He wasn't lying, then He was just nuts. Now obviously very, very few people in history have called Him mentally ill. Even secular scholars have called Him one of the greatest religious teachers in the history of the world. But I want you to see that that is not possible. It is not possible for Jesus to be one of the greatest religious teachers in the history of the world. Because at the core of His teaching, It was a claim that he was divine, that he was God. Unless you're willing to embrace that, then he's either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or or he is Lord. C.S. Lewis put this best in the argument he described. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Jesus fully identifies with God. The baby in the manger is, just as we sung a few minutes ago, Emmanuel, God with us. I want us to think briefly about this next truth. The the truth that this baby in the manger is not only God, the baby in the manger is human. He's is born in the likeness of, of man, nature of a servant. Literally God in the flesh, God as a human, with a human body, born physically, as a boy, with a body, a body that would get hungry and thirsty, a body that would need sleep. Do not believe away in a manger. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Not true. What parent has ever said that about their baby? Babies cry a lot. And he was a baby with a human body, a human mind. Luke 2.52 says he would grow in wisdom. He would learn to eat and talk and read and write. This is his humanity with human emotions. He would laugh and cry. His heart would become troubled. He would be overwhelmed with sorrow. He would experience joy and anger. I want you to see that Jesus not only fully identifies with God, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus fully identifies with us. Do not minimize His humanity. And in the process, miss the beauty of his identification with you and me. God is not far off from us, aloof, apart from us. He is indeed with us. He is familiar with our struggles. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was tempted just as we are. Whether it was in the desert with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Whether it was Peter saying, no, you can't go to the cross. Whether it was sweating blood in Gethsemane, Gethsemane at the thought of the cup before him. Whether it was people yelling to him on the cross. If you're the son of God, bring yourself down from there. Hebrews 2 says, he has been tempted and therefore he is able to help those who are tempted. He is familiar with our struggles. He's familiar with our sorrow. A man of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says, capable of unparalleled sympathy with us. And familiar with our suffering, obviously most clearly exemplified in the cross. I want you to think about the beauty of Christ's humanity as it relates to your pain and your weaknesses and your struggles and your sorrow and your suffering, even in this room. I want you to see that this is not just theological high talk about humanity and divinity. This comes right down to where you live Do you remember the term? We've talked about it. It's been a while. Called sympathetic resonance. Uh, I'm going to do something dangerous and come over here to the piano with Joel. Uh, uh, There's a term, musical term, called sympathetic resonance. And this term is used to describe how if you had, if we had two pianos, another piano just like this on the other side of the stage, and you were to hit one note on one piano, like middle C, What would happen is, on the other side of the stage, in that piano, the strings that correspond to middle C would slightly and gently resound. I'm not making this up, Oxford companion to music, sympathetic resonance, that when you strike one note on one instrument, there's an immediate resonance in a similar instrument. You say, well, thanks for the music. Lesson theory. What's the point? Here's the point when you walk through grief and sorrow and pain, I want you to know that there is in heaven at the right hand of the Father Jesus. A Savior who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, who knows grief and pain and sorrow just as you do. And when this note is struck in your instrument, it resounds with resonance from heaven. He is not unlike us he is like us able to sympathize with our weaknesses so that when you or i walk through all the different things that we walk through in this life to know that there is a savior on high who resonates with all of it our struggles and our sorrow and our suffering this is wonderful truth this baby is the sinless savior humbled, obedient to death on a cross. This is revelation by humiliation. The sovereign creator becomes, get this, a slave of creation. Sovereign creator of all becomes the slave of all. Being found in appearance as a man, verse 7 says. Now that sounds like it's just a repeat of being made in human likeness. But the reality is there's something else that Philippians 2 is pointing us to here. Yes, he was man. But when it says being found in appearance as a man, the focus is on how others perceived him. Now follow with me here. This is huge. How others perceived him. Other people perceived him as a man. As one who was just like them. You go to Matthew chapter 13 and you see even in his own hometown. They say, where did this man get all these things? He's just a carpenter's son. And they were offended at him. The people were looking at him like they were no different from them. See the humility here. The Creator stooped to a point where he was not even recognized by his creation. He whose glory is known throughout the whole earth. It's not even acknowledged by the people in front of him. His chosen people all throughout the Old Testament for that matter. Not only was he not known by them, but he was subject to them. He obeyed his parents. That's weird when you think about it. Isn't it? To obey the parents that you made? (laughs) Surely there was a temptation at some point to say, "Who, who are you? To tell me what to do. I formed you. And and he he was he was fed by people. As a baby, he as he grew, worked for people. How how would it feel to be employed by someone? that you crafted with your own hand and to submit to their authority as your employer. This is the picture. Think about how this is being worked out. Not even the most religiously devout people in Israel recognized him. In fact, what John 8, 48 says, you are a Samaritan and a demon. In other words, you're a traitor and a devil. That's, that's how they responded to him. All the way until the day when they falsely accused him and put him through a mock trial and spit in his face. And he didn't say a word. This is revelation by humiliation. He humbled himself. And it's salvation by substitution. He became obedient to death. The perfect son pays the price for sin. For him to be obedient to death when he had no sin and the payment for sin is death. The reality is he was in His humanity and divinity uniquely qualified to be a substitute for our sins. This is why, to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I didn't die for you and you didn't die for me. We weren't crucified for each other because we have sin in us. We are not able to be a substitute for each other in this way. You think about it, in order for a mediator to reconcile two parties together, that mediator must be intimately familiar with both parties. That's the picture. John Stott said the possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. What makes Jesus the unique mediator is that he is fully God, fully able to satisfy divine wrath do sin and he is fully man fully able to stand in the place where you and I deserve to be and this is why he came amidst, amidst the mystery of the incarnation do not miss the purpose of the incarnation the reality is Jesus came to die now that That sounds kind of normal to our ears because the reality is for all of us in this room death is inevitable, right? Death is inevitable for any one of us all of us, each of us in this room because we have sin. But he had no sin. Death was not inevitable for him. The perfect son perfectly obedient. And People will try to magnify many of the things that Jesus did. Even secular scholars saying, well, he came to teach love and to model service and to show humility and came to show patience and kindness, and he healed people of diseases, all of these good things. And yes, he did. But the reality is, if he did all of those things and stopped there, he would not be Savior. In order for him to save people from sin, then he had to die. He had to pay the price that you and I were due. And this is why from the very beginning, you see Jesus even in his ministry talking about he's going to a cross, he's going to a cross. There's coming a day when the Son of Man will suffer and be killed. This is why he came. Oh, think about this. Amidst the images that we have when it comes to Christmas, to realize that, that those sweet tender hands in a manger wriggling around were, were f- fashioned to one day have nails thrust into them, that those soft pink feet unable to walk were made so that one day they would walk up a dusty hill to a cross. That this precious head was formed so that one day soldiers would force a crown of thorns deep into it. That this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was created so that one day Soldiers would pierce it through with a sword, and blood and water would flow. The purpose of the incarnation, he was born to die. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, even death on a cross, it's as if he is is. It's overwhelmed because this is a shameful death. By first century standards, no experience more loathsomely degrading than this. The God who created the universe suffering the ultimate in human degradation, hanging naked in a sky in the sky before a mocking world. Shameful death. A painful death. The most torturous of all possible deaths. Beaten and scourged and lashed. And then nailed on a piece of wood and a cursed death. You think about this from a Gentile point of view, particularly a Roman point of view, think of someone crucified, not even the most cruel Roman citizen would have to go through that. Then you think about it from a Jewish point of view, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21, saying that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. This is... Paul saying, even death on a cross, the most shameful, painful, cursed death. This is what he was born for, to die like that so that as a result we might be born again to live. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See the beauty of incarnation coupled with crucifixion. His shame becomes our honor We stand before God deserving shame and death. And God, God clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. And we are honored in his presence. His pain becomes our joy. By his stripes, by his wounds, his suffering, we are healed. And his curse becomes our blessing. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All of this because he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This baby in a manger is worthy. He is worthy of adoration as the sinless Savior born on Christmas to die for sinners. This baby in a manger is the exalted Lord. This this is the heart of the New Testament. It is the heart of the early church church. Almost seven hundred and fifty different times in the New Testament, Jesus is confessed as Lord and and the heart of the Christmas story is that this this baby is indeed the, the Lord of all and then you think about what Philippians two nine through eleven is saying from from the perspective of both of both the Jewish people as well as gentiles and and you realize for him to be lord means that he reigns in the utmost position it says god exalted him you no know, you get into the original language of the new testament here and there's a rare compound verb that's used it's literally god super eminently exalted him like the picture is an emphasis on Christ being exalted to a place where there is none higher than Him. Placed over all things. He is not the greatest among many gods. He is the only God in a class by Himself. And this picture the Lord, like to think through what we've read through all this year. And we've seen God supremely revealed all throughout the Old Testament as Yahweh the Lord. And it's His name that we saw Him preeminently exalted as all throughout the Old Testament to see Jesus exalted then as Lord. There is none higher. The utmost position. He is Lord. Reigns in the utmost position. He holds unending power. His name represents So much more than what we should call him. His name represents his authority. This is where you jump into how Gentile readers, Greek readers, Greek language would hear this word Lord, Kyrios. And this is a word that would be used to describe a master over servants. Lord, authority To reign, to rule, to command, to demand, whatever that involves. And the reality is Jesus has the authority to save anyone who trusts in him. He has the power to save you from your sins and he has the power to rule your life the authority to rule every decision you make, every possession you own, every dream you have. There are some in our day who have tried to make a distinction here and say, you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. It is not true. He As Savior is the exalted Lord, and it is foolishness to claim salvation from your sins without submission to His reign. He holds unending power, He deserves universal praise. Every knee shall bow. Literally, bend the knee. An expression used in the Old Testament to show great reverence and submission and worship. Uh, The picture of a worshiper who cannot stand upright in the presence of the one that is being worshiped. And so, fall on your knees. Every single knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers all the knees. Every angel, every holy angel, every fallen angel. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil and his demons will bow the knee. And every single person in this room, every single person on this planet, and every single person in all of history will bend the knee before Christ as Lord. From every tongue, every language will make this confession. He deserves the universal praise and He fulfills the ultimate purpose. God, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. So this is a picture we're seeing, mystery of the incarnation, we're seeing Father and Son, the Holy Spirit in this whole picture. Father exalting Son, the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not put a period on it there. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so what we're saying here, you put this with all that we see in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the reality that God the Father sent God the Son to pay the price for sin, to redeem us, reconcile us to himself, that God the Spirit opens our eyes to see his glory, to see his beauty, to see our need, to confess him as Lord to the glory of, of Christ, to the glory of the Father. God magnified in the humiliation of Christ, God magnified in the exaltation of Christ so that Resounding from our lips and our lives, praise, glory, and honor to God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So, the decision we need to make, the decision that every person in this room is confronted with in the mystery of Christmas will you reject Jesus as Lord? Do not call him a good teacher. Not possible. Call him a legend. Call him a liar. Call him a lunatic. But not a good teacher. Reject him as legend, liar, or lunatic. Reject him as Lord now and bow the knee then. Here's here's the key that that I I want every person in this room to hear. The reality is, one day, every single person in this room is going to bow the knee and call Him Lord. That That is not up for decision. That is determined. Every knee will one day bow and call Him Lord. The question is, will you bow the knee now or will you bow the knee when it is too late? And and if you wait until it is too late after, after this life is over, I would be remiss in this week leading up to Christmas not to share with you based on the authority of God's Word that if you wait to bow the knee until then, you will experience eternal condemnation you will you will stand alone in your sin before a holy god and you will receive the just and due payment for your sin in his infinite judgment please see Christmas is more than just a series of commercial games for consumeristic minds this is eternal reality at stake with how you respond to the mystery of christmas reject him as lord bow the knee then eternal condemnation oh i want to urge every person in this room revere jesus as lord Bow the knee today. Confess his rule and his reign, his good and gracious and merciful rule and reign over your life. Trust him to forgive you of all your sins, to cover over your sins with his sacrifice on the cross. And say to the one who you, who made you, who knows what is best for you, I trust you. I confess that you are indeed Lord. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Bow the knee today and be confident of this. What lies ahead is eternal celebration where we will delight in and the declaration of the praise of Christ to the glory of God the Father in heaven forever. C.S. Lewis summed it up best when he said, what are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must either accept or reject this story.